Good morning, everybody. Praise God. Welcome to Gospel Saving Church. If this is your first time here, hello, I'm Pastor Ed Spagnoli, and this is Gospel Saving Church, one of, God, one of God's true churches of these last days, and this is our weekly broadcast of truth from God's Word. Thank you for joining us today. Pleasure to have you, wherever you're coming from, all over the world, right here in the Dallas, Texas area. Praise God. I'm so glad you're here. We always start with a word of prayer, so if you guys want to please join me, bow your heads, and let's ask the Lord to help us understand His Word, because we know we can't do that unless it be by His Holy Spirit, because we are such fleshly people. Lord, we thank You so much for this time that we get to study Your Word today. Thank You so much, Lord God, for all the revelation that You've given me this whole week. Thank You, Lord God, for Your grace and Your mercy, Lord. Your your literal mercies and Your literal grace are all around us, Lord God in heaven. Uh, Help us that are Yours, Lord God, to realize these things about You more and more every day. Lord, that we could live more relaxed, more just, more just enjoying uh, the blessings that you have given us all around us, especially here in America. Many countries, Lord God, have the same, Lord. We have air and we have a heartbeat, Lord. We've got food, Lord. We've got the ability to work or we've got the ability to, to have food and have things that we need and have the basic necessities of life, Lord. And And Jesus, you said that's what the Heavenly Father, that's what your Heavenly Father gives us. Uh, The things that we need. Not necessarily the things that we want, Lord, but the things that we need. And Lord, help us to to remember those things and just be joyous in you, Lord, every day. And Lord, for those that are not yours, Lord, those that may not be walking with you, Lord, help help them to see your goodness, Lord, for it is the goodness of God which draws men to repentance. Help them to see your goodness and your grace all around, Lord, and help them, Lord God, to either turn to you or back to you. We thank you, Lord. We love you. We praise you. Help us understand your word today. Help us understand the things of your word, so, Lord, we can apply them to our lives and that we can be, if we're yours, bold for you. Lord, if we're not yours, Lord, we can turn to you with full assurance, Lord God, that you're real and that you are who you say you are, a man of your word and a mighty God. <clears throat> we thank you, Lord, and we love you. We praise you. And we ask all these things in Jesus Christ's mighty name. Amen. You can open your Bibles to Psalm 22 today. That's where we're going to be. We're only going to touch on a couple other sections of Scripture in the Old Testament, and just just small sections, but Psalm 22, we're going to cover about half of that psalm in total today, and there's a prophecy in there that's it's awful amazing. And we're going to be hitting some New Testament Scriptures that are going to back up what Psalm 22 tells us and see an amazing parallel there. Uh, to start off, you know, I need to bring up, this is our last Hope of Israel sermon. This is uh, part seven, and this was week six of all the prophecies from the Old Testament that point out the things that Messiah was supposed to be and Jesus Christ fulfilling those prophecies. Last week, we finished one more of those prophecies, the many prophecies that Jehovah laid down in the Tanakh or Old Testament that are define his Messiah when he comes, as far as the actions and the things he would do and the characteristics that he would have. Meaning again, for the one that has come already or for the one who is to come, Messiah must have or will have to fulfill these prophecies that Jehovah gave of him in order for him to be considered God's or Jehovah's one true Messiah. Uh, today we're going to cover three. Uh, we've already been through about, uh, I'd say about eight or ten. Uh, we're going to cover three more. There are many, but as I was telling my beautiful wife this week, there are many, there are many more 
but but not ones that really emulate and and have the the power that the ones that I've already taught you are. And so I want to leave you with those. But you can always look online. I've given I give a link to each one of these sermons from um, the you know I, I'm going to be writing a, a document as well too and putting it on a Gospel Church a website. But there's a the 40, 40 of the most powerful or 40 prominent, uh, something, 40 prominent prophecies of the Old Testament that's on Jews for Jesus website. And I got a link to that website on each one of these sermons down in the comment section or down in the, you know, the overview section. So week one, just recapping week one, part two of our talking about prophecies, we got how Messiah was to be born when that was by a virgin birth, of course, and by which family of Israel he was to be born from. And we know that was King David. <clears throat> Week two of the prophetic sermons, part three, was what kind of miracles he would do. And that would be healings and the lame and the blind and carrying our sorrows, of course. And, and of course, where he would be born. And we know that's Bethlehem. Week three, part four, the one concerning the name above all names that Jehovah bestowed upon Messiah, the only begotten Son of God. And we know that was the only place where Jehovah referenced himself in direct relationship with the Messiah as his literal begotten Father, not just, you know, like the children of Israel. And we, as God's children, are his children. That is by adoption, of course. And then week four, part five, Messiah Prince was to come, Daniel 9, in a specific time and date in history, plus be killed, but not for himself, for others, specifically for a covenant as an atoning sacrifice to take care of man's greatest enemy's sin. And then last week, week five, part six, Isaiah 52, 53, God's righteous suffering servant, a parallel, a direct parallel to Daniel 9, one that was, you know, this, this righteous suffering servant, one that was to die for the sins of mankind making payment for our sin, but also then to resurrect to life after death, of course. And I've shown you thus far how, with proof from the Tanakh and the New Testament scriptures, how most of the prophecies I've shown you can no longer be fulfilled. Okay, Daniel 9 can no longer be fulfilled. That, for, that part of Daniel 9, other than the last seven weeks that we're waiting for, well, we'll cover that a little bit. I'll talk about that for a moment later on in the sermon. But other than that, the first, the majority of that prophecy in Daniel 9 has already come to pass and the dates line up and it's already gone. So either Jesus Christ was the Messiah or whoever was Messiah has already come and gone the first time. And we know scripture talks about, you know, uh, Isaiah 11, that Messiah was supposed to come twice, right? So I've already shown you that, how the uh, many of the prophecies can't even be fulfilled anymore. They would have had to come to pass in the past. And number two, how the only one that it could have fulfilled those prophecies from the past was Jesus Christ, because we have proof, textual proof, Jew, you know, Jewish historical document of the, the Bible, the Tanakh, that, that has these prophecies that directly point with pinpoint accuracy that Jesus Christ was the one that fulfilled them, making him Jehovah's one true Messiah. Now, beginning two weeks ago, and this I'm gonna I'm gonna line you up here for coming into today's sermon, coming into today's Psalm 22. Beginning two weeks ago, we looked at a very important prophecy in Daniel chapter nine. Remember, God sent Gabriel to Daniel to tell him some important things about Messiah when he was to return the first time. 
or when he was to come the first time, the time frame in which he would live on earth, when he was going to die, why he was to come, the reason of his death was to pay for mankind's greatest enemy, the sin, you know, sin uh, by his death for others. Verse 26 of Daniel 9, we've already covered it, first part of Daniel, it's already covered, covered, Messiah shall be cut off, but not for himself. Remember the Hebrew word there for cut off was karath, Strong's H3772, the common word used in the Mosaic law, means to be killed specifically for or to make a covenant, which made there God's Messiah in that passage a specific sacrifice for sin. Mankind sinned in atonement, not for himself. Exactly like we saw the picture of him in the sections of Isaiah 52 and 53 last week. Those pictures, Isaiah 53, 5. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. Uh, verse 6, the Lord has laid on him in the iniquity of us all. Verse 8, just like God said in the Old Testament how they were to lay the iniquity on a bull or a goat or a ram. Verse 8, he was to be cut off from the land of the living for the transgressions of my people he was to be stricken. Verse 11, yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He has put him to grief when you make his soul an offering for sin. Again, these last three sections we studied in Daniel 9, Isaiah 52, 53, were, are very controversial to the Jews and those who don't believe that Jesus was Messiah because they they think that Christians wrote him, even though there's textual proof, historical proof, archaeological proof of documents that have been found that were way before Christians ever lived on the planet. But nevertheless, they are ancient, the documents that we've studied, prophetic, and in the Hebrew Bible and Tanakh. And so far, I've even shown you how Jesus from ancient times in their, how Jews, excuse me, from ancient times in their Talmuds, believed that the sections from Daniel and Isaiah 52 and 53 were their Messiah. Making the picture of Messiah I've given you thus far of a suffering, rejected, and then killed for the sins of mankind, Savior, a valid and verified one according to the Jews' of ancient times, meaning that Messiah was to come and do more than just rule and reign, being a great political ruler, bringing world peace, gathering the Jews from Jerusalem, you know, all, to Jerusalem from all over the world, etc. And he was to come and suffer and die for the sins of mankind as an atoning sacrifice, just as the prophetic scriptures show us. Will God's Messiah reign and rule over the world like Hebrew uh, scripture prophecies of? Of course, if Jehovah said it would happen, of it's going to happen. It's a done deal. It's as good as done. When God says something, he says it's going to come to pass, it's going to come to pass. But it's going to come to pass in Jesus Christ's second coming. As I referenced earlier, this last seven-year period of the Daniel chapter 9 prophecy, coming soon to Jerusalem and a world in a city near you. Now, the picture I'm going to give you today of Jehovah's Messiah is one that portrays two key aspects out of Daniel 9 and Isaiah 52 and 53 and how they played out in real life. Uh, those from Isaiah that today's Psalm 22 is going to perfectly picture. Uh, Isaiah 53, uh, 52, 14 and 15, his visage, remember, being marred more than any man and then him sprinkling or startling the nations because they were surprised. Wow, who is this that has come? We did not expect this one. Uh, Isaiah 53, 3, him being a despised and rejected man, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, 53.4, bearing our griefs, carrying our sorrows, and then, then considering him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. Notice the Jews considered him smitten and stricken by God and afflicted. This is Isaiah. This is, uh, again, 
600 years before Christ lived. These are the things that Isaiah says, that God says through Isaiah that Messiah was going to go through. And then uh, Isaiah 53, 7, he was be oppressed and afflicted, yet he's not going to open his mouth as he's led as a lamb to the slaughter and as a sheep before it shares the silence. So he opens not his mouth. And we talked about that being in a negative way. So those are all the pictures that we're going to see today. Psalm 22 actually just shows us the exact scenes by which all this happens. It gives us the details of how all these things happen and even shows us and gives us a picture of the scene of Daniel 9 and Isaiah 52 and 53. So if we can, please, we're going to read over uh, Psalm 22 verses 1 through 18. And you guys can read along or follow along with me. Either way, we're going to read it over real quick first, and then we're going to study it. We're going to look at it. It's awesome, awesome, awesome prophecy. Psalm 22, verses 1 through 18. David, the psalmist, writes this. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from helping me? And from the words of my groaning. Oh my God, I cry in the daytime, but you do not hear. And in the night season, and I'm not silent. But you are holy and thrown in the praises of Israel. Our fathers trusted in you. They trusted and you delivered them. They cried to you and you, or and were delivered. They trusted in you and were not ashamed. But I am a worm and no man, a reproach of men and despised by the people. All those who see me ridicule me. They shoot out the lip. They shake their head saying, He trusted in the Lord. Let him rescue him. Let him deliver him since he delights in him. But you are he who took me out of the womb. You made me trust while on my mother's breasts. I was cast upon you from birth from my mother's womb. You have been my God. Verse 11. Be not far from me for trouble is near. For there is none to help me. Many bulls have surrounded me. Strong bulls of Bashan have encircled me. They gape at me with their mouths like raging and roaring lion. I am poured out like water, and my bone and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within me. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue clings to the, my jaws. You have brought me to the dust of death. For dogs have surrounded me. The congregation of the wicked has enclosed me. They pierce my hands and my feet. I count all my bones. They look and stare at me. They divide my garments among them. And for my clothing, they cast lots. Interesting, interesting psalm that we have there. I, I hope you saw that. I hope you read that. Uh, you may be thinking, uh, come on, Pastor, that, that's, 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 a, that's a New Testament thing. Oh, no, that's not a New Testament thing. That's right out of the Old Testament. That was King David that wrote that 800 years before Jesus Christ ever lived. Psalm 22, verse 1. David writes out this psalm. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus Christ yelled this exact phrase in Matthew 27, 46 out when he was on the cross when they had lifted him high up in the air. Sounds familiar to Isaiah 52, 13. Behold, my servant shall deal prudently. He shall be exalted and extolled and be very high. 
Well, in crucifixion, a person was lifted up very high on a cross. Coincidence? I don't think so. Jesus Christ was trying to tell us something. What was he trying to tell us? I, as well as others that I have heard on this matter, believe that he yelled this phrase specifically from the cross to point those around him, plus all people throughout all the ages that would be interested and curious, to this exact psalm. Back in Jesus' day, all the way up for many, 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 many years, even after that, there was no scriptures and chapters and verses. I should say there was no chapters and verses on the scriptures. Psalm 22 wasn't Psalm 22. It was just Psalm by David. And so, of course, they kind of knew their Psalms by their words. And, of course, those beginning words, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I believe that that's the only psalm that starts out with those words and actually david writes a little bit down farther he says the same thing again he says it twice why would he have wanted to point any of us anyone ever to this psalm specifically well because it gives an exact picture of the events that he lived and then of course that he died of. He wanted all that heard his cry from the cross to go to this psalm and read it so that we would see that he was the one that David was writing of, that David prophesied of in Psalm 22. The same one that the sections of Daniel 9 and Isaiah 52 and 53 spoke of, God's suffering Messiah. Huge note as we read the rest of this psalm that I want you to keep your mind on. The first part of this psalm, if we're going to say Jesus Christ fulfilled it, the first part of this psalm was the only part that he had any part in and of himself to actually fulfill. The rest, all that's done to him in this psalm, is carried out by others, by the hands of others. Psalm 22, picking up after, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me there in verse 1? Why are you so far from helping me and from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry in the daytime, but you do not hear. And in the night season, I am not silent, but you are holy, enthroned in the praises of Israel. Our fathers trusted in you. They trusted and you delivered them. They cried to you and were delivered. They trusted in you and we're not ashamed. Obviously, this is how he, Jesus Christ, was feel, feeling at the time when he was up on the cross. Hence, hence, he said, hey, look to this psalm. This is me. Look at what the psalm is talking about. He obviously was feeling those ways. He is struggling with what has happened to him. He's feeling forsaken by God. He's feeling like God is not hearing his cries, even though he's suffering. God, why won't you deliver me from my suffering? He feels like God is not helping him. And as I said, guys and gals, this is Jesus Christ while he's suffering on the cross. We must never forget that Jesus Christ, the Bible says, was 100% God, but he was also 100% man. And according to his words that he pointed us to also in this psalm, plus the words of, of his in the Garden of Gethsemane, where he's struggling with going to the cross. He knows what his future is. He knows what God, he knows why he was born. We don't know when God revealed that to him when he was a child or when he got a little older. But he, we know, the scripture says that he knows that he was born 
to die for the sins of mankind. So he's in the garden. He knows it's coming. He, he, he's, he, he's brought his disciples out there. He, he knows this is the last time that he's going to be alone with them while he's alive in his, in, a, in his born, birthed, human flesh body. And he's struggling with what's going to happen to him on the cross. And so as he's struggling, he's, he's asking God, God, w- would you let this cup pass from me? <laughs> Basically, he's saying, God, I don't, that's going to hurt. I don't really want to go through this. So yet he says that, he struggles with it, but then he, he secedes and he, 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 he humbles himself and he says, but God, nevertheless, not my will, let your will be done. So looking at that and then this depiction of him on the cross, he, of how he was thinking and feeling, Jesus Christ, believe it or not, struggled with trusting God at times near the close of his earthly life, the times that he struggled and the times that he suffered. How often do we, if you're a follower of Christ, how often do we have a hard time trusting in God when we're struggling and when we're suffering? Just crying to God this the other day myself, for others in my life, and even myself. God, it's easy to trust in you when things are going perfect. Wow, is it ever. It's easy to trust in God when everything is fine and bills are paid and everybody's healthy and nobody's got any struggles going on that, that you know they could be healed from, but they're not. But boy, it sure is hard to trust in God when we're suffering, when we're in pain, when we're sick. When, when our job's in jeopardy, whatever, you know what I mean. And so just know that Jesus Christ feel, felt those same ways, yet he tells us that he knows that God is with him because not because of how he feels, but because of the fact that the ancient people of Israel, when they cried out to him, they put their trust in him. And then because they put their trust in him, he speaks out about Jehovah heard them and delivered them and called to, you know, call and took care of them. Okay. I don't want to take too much of the way from the study of Jesus Christ being God's suffering Messiah of God, of God in Psalm 22 here from Daniel and and Isaiah. But I just must say to all of us that are out there that are, that love Jesus Christ, but are struggling with different things and ailments and sicknesses and pains, um, feelings are never going to tell us God's real. Feelings may, may come and pass, you know, for a time, short periods here. Oh, I feel, I feel so close to God at this moment. But you know what? It, those times are so fleeting and so passing. Uh, it's like they never even existed, even, even two days after they happened. So most of the time, we grow close to God when we just simply trust in Him. We cannot trust our feelings. They are deceptive and they lie to us all the time. We should only trust in the facts and the truth, which are trademarks of God and of God, whom we should trust always and forever because he's a man of his word and he said he'd take care of us. He said he'd be with us if we're his or, or if you want to be his or if you're thinking about becoming his, he said I'll always be with you. And you don't have to go by feelings. You can go on his word and he's a man of his word. We can Jesus Christ chose here to trust in and obey God, not because of feelings, but because of the reality of God's track record of faithfulness. And again, if you, I, were followers of Jesus Christ, this must be why we continue to drive on with Christ also. Not because we feel like it, or because we feel like this, that, or whatever, but we need to drive on because God is faithful. God is awesome. God is love. God is grace. God is mercy. 
And he says, here I am, trust in me. Anyway, that's just a word I want to speak into your hearts. God touched me with that after I saw that Jesus Christ felt that way. Moving on, Messiah goes on to say verse 6, where it gets really interesting as far as prophetics go. Verse 6, but I am a worm. Um, David goes on to write, let's think about Jesus Christ here, but I am a worm and no man, a reproach of men and despised by the people. His reality up there on the cross, this Messiah's reality in Messiah 22 was an exact parallel of the God's suffering Messiah, Isaiah 53.3. He is despised and rejected by men. Parallel scripture. I, I, I Psalm 22 is the actual scene, the playing out of Daniel 9 and Isaiah 52, Isaiah 53, verse 7, Psalm 22. All those who see me ridicule me. They shoot out the lip. They shake the head, saying, He trusted in the Lord. Let him rescue him. Let him deliver him, since he delights in him. Yet another direct parallel to Isaiah 53, 4. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. Now, what we just read was the prophecy that Jehovah gave of his Messiah, again, directly paralleling Isaiah and Daniel's suffering, rejected Messiah. And now, listen to what literally happened to Jesus when he was on the cross, 33 AD, Matthew 27, 39 through 44. And those who passed by blasphemed him, wagging their heads and saying, you who destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. 41. Likewise, the chief priests also, mocking with the scribes and elders, said, He saved others, himself he cannot save. If he is the king of Israel, let him now come down from the cross and we will believe him. Verse 43, he trusted in God. Let him deliver him now if he will have him. For he said, I am the son of God. Them even testifying that he said, Jesus said, spoke, uh, uh, testified, I am the son of God. Verse 44, even the robbers who were crucified with him reviled him with the same thing. Verse 41 of Matthew to Psalm 22, 7. All those who see me ridicule me. They shoot out the lip. They shake their head at me. Exact, identical things were done and said. Wow. It's like when we read that part of Psalm 22, it was like we were reading the New Testament where Christ is on the cross. <laughs> wow. Well, that's all I can say. Wow. Verse 43 of Matthew to verse 8 of Psalm 22. He trusted in the Lord. Let him rescue him. Let him deliver him since he delights in him. You see, many, I'm included in the many, believe that David actually saw the scene and heard the words that were spoken to Christ and by Christ on the cross and those that spoke to him that he heard those words and he saw that scene. It has to be, and only reason I believe that is because Psalm 22, the, the Psalms that we have, are, the documents that we have, way predate Christianity and Christians ever walking the face of the planet. They're all historically been verified that they are Jewish and Hebrew texts having nothing to do with the Christians. Yet, Psalm 22 and Jesus Christ on the cross, right there, identical. 
What was recorded as said to Messiah during his time of suffering, Psalm 22, was what was said to Jesus Christ, word for little word, and what exactly happened to him. They ridicule me. They shoot out the lip. They shake their heads. And yet, Matthew 27, likewise, uh, and those who pass by blaspheme them, wagging their heads. That's shaking their heads. Right? Blaspheme, uh, you who destroy the temple, save yourself. (laughs) Wow, that is amazing, 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 amazing how identical they are. And you tell me, (laughs) here's another one. Here's an aspect, because I'm a skeptic, and I know I'm preaching to skeptics, and I know I'm talking to skeptics. I talk to skeptics and atheists at times. You tell me. Did Jesus Christ make those around him say those things to him? Or how about this, which we know that can't be the case, because how could he if he's up on a cross and he's, he's silent? Or, or did they say those things to him to prove to us that he was Messiah from Psalm 22? Well, we know that can't be, because if, he, if they did that, then they wouldn't be ridiculing him on the cross telling him those things, proving him from Psalm 22, because then they would believe in him. They wouldn't be ridiculing him. I I believe in him. I don't ridicule him. Okay? See, it's impossible. They didn't believe in him as Messiah. They rejected him. (laughs) When they came, we then can, can conclude that they spoke these things to him because he was indeed Jehovah's suffering Messiah that Psalm 22 spoke of and why Jesus Christ wanted us to come to the psalm and read it so that we would believe in him as Jehovah's Messiah. Uh, Maybe you're saying the disciples just wrote those things that were said of him because they wanted to trick people into believing that Jesus Christ was the one that God said was coming. Well, if they did, I'm not even getting to historical proof on this one. I'm just getting to historical proof on this one, like history even outside the Bible. Historically, we know if they did write what they did write to point us to Psalm 22 because it was for Jesus Christ, because it was, you know, him, and they were trying to trick people, that they had zero motivation to do so for they gained literally zero anything good for what they wrote. What they gained from what they wrote of Jesus as Messiah, the, the one that Psalm 22 was speaking of, was they gained flogging, they, they gained uh, ridicule themselves, they gained persecution, and then they gained death. That's what Matthew, who wrote Matthew 27, the, the Apostle Matthew, that's what he gained from him writing those things if he did them to trick people. Now, I don't know about you, but in, in order for me to like trick people, I got to have some good motivation in to do that. I got to gain some power. I got to gain some wealth. I got to gain, some, which I, I don't do, but understand if I'm, if I'm that deceptive person and I'm doing those things and I'm saying those things because of that, then I'm going to get something good out of it. Well, the disciples got nothing good except for floggings beatings ridicule persecution and then death so so they couldn't have written for wrote it for that because if they did they were just plain fools and does a fool die for what he knows to be a lie and the answer is no keep reading verses 9 through 11 actually believe it or not it gets even more 
interesting. Verse 9 through 11. But you, speaking, David here, writing as from the psalmist, as from the, what the scene that he saw, but you, speaking of God, are he who took me out of the womb. You made me trust while on my mother's breast. Verse 10, I was cast upon you from birth. From my mother's womb you have been my God. It's a huge key there that tells us that this one here in Psalm 22 was indeed Jehovah's Messiah. Those two verses imply strongly that this one was God's child as the one was of Jehovah directly from the womb of his mother's uh, of, of birth, from birth from his mother's womb. Uh, then, while Jehovah's Messiah is there in the midst of being attacked and rejected and persecuted, he goes on to pray, verse 11, to his heavenly Father, Be not far from me, for trouble is near, for there is none to help me. Backing up to what we know about Messiah coming and being born of a virgin. Remember, we have Isaiah chapter 7 and we have Isaiah chapter 9 speaking of Messiah to be born into the world as a child and as a child of Israel from the tribes of Israel, God being with him. And then, of course, Isaiah 9 speaks about God literally being him. And then Isaiah, of course, the Messiah was to be called Emmanuel, which we know means God with us. So now, anyway, moving on, just wanted to point those out. Verse 11 again, be not far from me is how Messiah is feeling here on the cross, how suffering Messiah is feeling here in Psalm 22. Be not far from me, for trouble is near, for there is none to help me. So uh, although this one was God's Messiah, he was being rejected and scorned, like we talked about Isaiah 52, 53. And in his literal situation, he was in trouble and no one was around him that would help him. Does that sound familiar? It should. Matthew 26, the New Testament of the Bible, the Christian Bible, says that when they came to arrest Jesus Christ, uh, to take him away to Pilate to go on to judgment, all his disciples forsook him. So even though he had disciples, after he was arrested during his time of trial, right before he died, his disciples all fled. They were there in an, in a in a in a way where they were hidden. They were kind of far off, kind of estranged. They weren't, you know, directly communicating with him. They weren't helping him in any way. They weren't stopping any stopping any of the proceedings. They were John was there, kind of Peter was there, kind of a far off, kind of looking on, but nobody was there to help him. And this is what verse 11, Psalm 22, just said. Keep reading verses 12 and 13. Wow, uh, many bulls have surrounded me. Strong bulls of Bashan have circled me. They gape at me with their mouths like a raging and roaring lion. Another verse that portrays Matthew 27, 39 through 44, where everyone near him circled around him while on the cross, while being viciously angry and hateful in their words towards him. They gaped at him with their mouth. Oh, if he is the son of God, let him come down and deliver himself. Then we'll believe in him. So here, another picture that shows us how they were being. They were walking around him and ridiculing him and speaking evil things to him. Psalm twenty-two, fourteen. read it, where Messiah says that I am poured out like water. That means that he's at the end of himself. And he goes on to say, all my bones are out of joint. And this one here, is become, his, his bones have become dislocated. 
My heart is like wax. It's melted within me. His heart being melted like wax within means that his heart is literally being broken. His heart is literally dying within him. Did you know that those events are the exact same things to happen to someone while they're uh, in the midst of being crucified? During crucifixion, the person comes to the end of themselves as they hang there, waiting for the effects of the crucifixion and the flogging that they had before to kill them. When they crucify someone, they pull their arms wide and stretch them out to drive nails into them. And then are all and then all the crucified person's weight must hang on his arms and shoulders. And guess what? They become dislocated because they have no strength in their legs and their body to keep themselves up constantly. So their arms and and and. Uh, shoulders all come become dislocated and the most interesting thing though that messiah says there in that verse 14 was about his heart he said my heart is like wax it's melted within me we see during crucifixion from a physician's standpoint <clears throat> an agonizing pain begins a terrible crushing pain deep in the chest starts at a certain point because of the pericardium which is the membrane enclosing the heart slowly fills with what they call serum it's an amber colored kind of rich liquid that separates out you know when the blood coagulates and begins to compress the heart messiah says verse 14 that his heart was melting within him his heart was dying within him confirming this condition verse 15 psalm 22 my strength is dried up like a potsherd my tongue clings to my jaws you have brought me to the dust of death all these things happen to messiah caused him to know he's close to death it's not long at this point look at the similarities to christ and his crucifixion in the new testament of the bible matthew 27 26 then he re released barabbas to them and when he had scourged jesus that was flogging he delivered him to be crucified. History shows us the reality that he was truly crucified. I'll talk about that soon. Psalm twenty-two, fifteen, where he says, Psalmist says of the Messiah, my tongue clings to my jaws. John eight, uh, John nineteen, twenty-eight through thirty. After this, Jesus, knowing that all things were now accomplished, he stood on the cross. Then the scripture might be fulfilled, said, I thirst. Now a vessel of sour wine was sitting there, and they filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on hyssop, and put it to his mouth. So when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And bowing his head, he gave up his spirit. How can I say that history proves Christ's crucifixion? Both a fellow named Josephus, a Jewish historian, as well as a fellow named Tacitus, which was a Roman historian, who were not Christians, by the way, spoke of Pilate's crucifixion of Christ in their historical writings, and they are unbiased than opinions, proofs that Jesus Christ was actually crucified and that the Romans did indeed crucify people. This gives us, again, unbiased historical proof that Jesus Christ was crucified by Pilate. Then if he was crucified, we know his bones would have been pulled out of their joints, as well as the heart failure that Psalm 22 describes. In fact, we know scientifically that Jesus died literally of a broken heart by one of the other counts of the crucifixion by another one of his disciples, John. In John 19, we have the recording. You see, the, the Jews had a law from God. If you were going to hang somebody up on a tree, 
which a wooden stake is a, is a tree, is a part of a tree. So that would have been considering hanging them up on a tree. If you were to hang somebody up on a tree, you were supposed to take them down before sunset. God said, you're not supposed to have them hanging on that tree overnight. Especially not when the next day was the Sabbath and Sabbath started at sundown. So we're getting close to sundown. And the Jews, the Romans want to keep the Jews happy. They got them in subjugation. They want to keep them happy. So what they do is the Jews, or or the Romans, excuse me, go to the prisoners. And they're like, we got to get these prisoners off the cross. We got to keep the Jews happy. They're Sabbaths tomorrow. We don't want to make, make them mad. So they come to the two thieves that are on the cross. And the way that people mostly died during crucifixion was because they suffocated. If the wounds didn't kill them and they stayed there for any length of time, what would happen is, is they... You, you see, it's, it's a, it was a balancing act. Your, the nails were driven into your hands slash wrists uh, near the two bones in the wrist, uh, the uh, radius and the ulna, I believe it is. And so as they hung there, of course, as they sagged down, their lungs would kind of like tighten and they wouldn't be able to take a breath in. Every breath they had to take was they had to lift up by the nails in their feet they had to raise themselves up, scratching their backs on the back of the post, which would rip off more of the skin that was already ripped off from the flogging, just to take a breath. As soon as they got a breath, they would relax their legs because you can't lean on those nails in your feet for too long because of the excruciating pain. And so then they would lean again down on the nails that were in their wrists, and then that would compress their chest and they wouldn't be able to breathe again. Well, you see here what they did here to kill the two the two thieves, John says, as they break their legs. Why does that kill them? Well, then they cannot stand, they cannot push themselves up on their legs because their legs are not broken. So the last breath that they had taken was their last breath and they will die from asphyxiation. Well, they come to Jesus and John 13, 33 and 34, John 19, excuse me, 33 and 34 says this, when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs, but one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear and immediately blood and water came out. Now, that fulfills another prophecy of Christ and the Messiah was not supposed to have a broken bone. I'm not going to get to that, just pointing that out, you can look it up. But here, when they pierced his their spear through his side science says that when the blood and water came out science says that where <clears throat> that was where there was an escape of the water fluid from the sac surrounding the heart giving postmortem which would mean death evidence that he died not in the usual crucifixion death by suffocation as i just described but by heart failure due to shock and constriction of the heart by fluid in the pericardium Just exactly what I said about what happens to people when they were crucified and when they died of crucifixion or what happened to the heart during the crucifixion. Amazing how pinpoint the details are here in Psalm 22 and what Messiah actually went through and what happened to Jesus Christ while he was on the cross 33 AD, isn't it? Again, do you see why Jesus cried out from the cross, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He wanted to point the people, us, then, uh, all peoples that would look to this psalm to see, Wow, this was Jesus Christ in this psalm. (laughs) There's more. Please keep reading Psalm 22, verses 16, 17. We're almost done. Psalm 22, 16, 17. For dogs have surrounded me, 
The congregation of the wicked has enclosed me. They pierce my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. They look and stare at me. Look at how that lines up to Matthew 27, 26 through 31 from Psalm twenty-two sixteen. 16. Then he released Barabbas to them, and when they had scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the praetorium and gathered the whole garrison around him. What did I just say? Psalm twenty-two sixteen. For dogs, dogs would be Gentiles, according to David, written in the Psalms. That's what he's seeing. He's seeing Gentiles surrounding Messiah. Notice there's a difference between who he's talking about. And, of course, who's encircling him. And dogs, again, a reference to Gentiles. Matthew 27, 26-31, Gentiles went ahead and gathered around him. They stripped him, put a scarlet robe on him. When they had twisted a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and, and a reed in his hand, and they bowed the knee before him. Okay, it talks about how they looked upon and they stared upon him. And they mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. Then they spat on him and, and took the reed and struck him on the head. And when they had mocked him, they took the robe off and put on his own clothes on him and then led him away to be crucified. Wow. Psalm 27, or Matthew 27, 26 from Psalm twenty-two seventeen. Then he released Bravis to them and scourged Jesus. Well, when Romans scourged someone that was to be put to death, they did it so violently and brutally that the flesh of the flogged person would literally hang off their bones, exposing many times the raw bone beneath the flesh and even their organs. Uh, verse 17 of, of Psalm 22 I can count all my bones. This one here is seeing his bones. Then Pilate, the rest of Matthew 27, 26, he delivered him to be crucified. And Psalm 26, 22, 16 says they pierced his hands and feet, which was how they held the crucified person to the wooden cross. Uh, actual archaeological evidence of a heel and a huge nail driven into it, two heels actually, and a nail driven into it has been found, which verified that Romans actually practiced this brutal, brutal form of capital punishment. Now, just an aside here, verse 16, Hebrew Bible, uh, verse 17, has been a controversial one for the Jews. Most English translations say they have pierced my hands and feet, while the Jewish Publication Society of the Hebrew Bible translation reads, Like a lion, they maul my hands and feet. Literally, like a lion, my hands and feet. However, the Septuagint, which was the Greek translation of the Old Testament made in the first few centuries before Jesus, uses the phrase, pierced. So what's the deal? Which is it? Did they maul his hands like a lion, or were his hands literally pierced? Well, Interesting fact, the Hebrew words for they have pierced, or the Hebrew word, I guess, yeah, the Hebrew words for they have pierced is karu. I'm probably sure I'm saying that wrong, but K-A-A-R-U, karu. And like a lion is karai, K-A-A-R-I. Notice the only difference in those two words is by the one letter at the end, the U and the I. Both similar to one another, meaning that the scribe who was translating the scriptures or was copying the, 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 the scrolls from one scroll to the other could have easily made a mistake in copying. But to me, I don't even see any problem with this at all. I don't, I don't see why this is controversial at all. Let me explain. 
even if we just take the, 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 the Jews' literal translation of this, and we, and we just say that the psalmist is saying here, and the Messiah here, that they mauled his hands and feet like a lion. Well, think about how the hands and the feet of someone would look if they were mauled by a lion. They'd be all mangled up. They'd have holes in them. They'd be scary, right? They probably wouldn't even look like hands at all. Well, here, I see that it's more of a literal translation to what happens when they crucify someone. For when they take the hands of the crucified person, they stretch them out to the sides, then they drove a huge nail right into the wrist between the two bones of the ulnus and the radia. Well, the hands, of course, would have been like this, kind of clutching on because they would have been in pain. So the hands would have been kind of mangled up looking. And the nails driven into the wrist would, of course, cause the, 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 the wrist to kind of expand a little bit, not looking like a real wrist, looking like it had been mauled. And for the feet, they placed them on top of one another, and then they drove that huge, huge, huge nail right through the tops of the feet together into the wood. Then they'd bend the nail in the back so that there was no chance that the, wood, that the feet would be able to, the nail would slip out. It's kind of brutal. So, ouch, right? To me, if that's not mauling the crucified man's hand or woman's hands and feet, I don't know what is. So I don't, I don't really care that the translation issues of they pierce his, his hands and feet or my hands and feet or, or they maul them like a lion, they look the same to me. It doesn't matter. David, I could have seen him seeing the, 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 the cross scene and going, wow, look at that, look at that guy's hands and look at his feet. Oh, it's like it's like lions attacked him and, and bit holes in him and, and it's all mangled and they're bloody and and from the flogging, the flogging also would have mangled the hands and mangled the feet, because when they were hitting the people, the hands would have gotten the flesh ripped off of them too and the feet as well too. So I don't see any difference here, but people have a problem with it, of course, because people don't they want to pick out any little thing, oh it's, it's not that's not bad. It, see, it can't be him, but there's too many other things in the psalm that directly, absolutely, like pinpointedly point out. <clears throat> that Messiah here was crucified, and that was Jesus Christ who was crucified, direct, direct parallels. Now, I think you should know something, as I've already, as I've already talked about. Psalm 22, which was perfectly a portrayal of the crucifixion of Jehovah's Messiah, with the gruesome details of what happened to him, was written some 800 years before Jesus Christ was crucified. And at that time, crucifixion wasn't even a way of capital punishment by anybody on earth. Again, crucifixion wasn't even invented when this psalm was penned. Okay, pretty interesting. Which means that no one had been crucified, no one's hands and feet had been pierced by nails or mauled like lions in the, in the scenario that we talked about, how, how the details line up with the crucifixion, for nobody had been crucified yet. The last detail, I'll come back to that in a little bit. I've got one more point to make about that. But the last detail that the psalmist describes for us here almost, or also directly points to an event that happened to Christ while he was on the cross. Psalm 22, 18, our last verse for today. They divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Does that sound familiar? Well, it should. Matthew 27, 35. Then they crucified him, the evil people and divided his garments, 
casting lots that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the prophet. They divided my garments among them and for my clothing they cast lots. The very Jewish ex-tax collector turned apostle of Jesus Christ, Matthew, even quotes that this prophetic suffering Messiah psalm that he wrote in his account, in his gospel, was the one saying, and they fulfilled the prophecy by doing this. Again, Christ didn't have anything to do with them taking his clothes and dividing his clothes amongst them and casting lots for them. Matthew, by the way, was a first-hand witness, as I said earlier, from afar, of the crucifixion of Jesus Christ actually happening, again, directly, watching it with his own eyes. Now, now maybe you're going to say, Pastor Ed, you remember you said King David was the one who penned this psalm, and maybe he was writing about a time when these things happened to himself. Good thought, but not an accurate one. For you see, you can yourself, as I can myself, go through whether you're the Jewish Bible or the Christian Bible, the Old Testament, and you can go from Ruth to Kings, where David is mentioned. First Kings, Ruth to First Kings. And you can read from David's life, his whole life, to what he did, to his death, that nothing like this ever happened to him. He never went through anything like what Psalm 22 describes. He also never died a gruesome death of a heart melting within him and his hands being mauled or pierced. He never went through anything like that. 1 Kings uh, 2.10 says that he was an old man and he died. And that's just it. And Solomon's son took over, and so that was it. As far as the possibility of Jesus Christ fulfilling this psalm, well, absolutely. It pinpointedly describes what he went through on the cross some 800 years before he lived. And you can't even say that he had any, any fulfillment or anything to do in fulfilling what happened to him in the psalm. Uh, maybe he could have read this psalm and then acted it out, but how could that be since he was nailed to the cross at the time? It was those around him who were responsible for the evil things that happened to him that this psalm described. All except for the beginning, remember, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Which again, I believe he said that. Of course, that's how he was feeling. The words after, and they coincide with how he was feeling at the time. But he said them mainly, of course, to point us to this psalm to show us he was the suffering Messiah from Daniel 9 and Isaiah 52 and 53 from Psalm 22 with the picture of that. The details of this psalm are identical to what happened to him when he was crucified, and they can only fit him throughout all history as, guess what? No one else has attributed anything like this to any other character throughout all history. Not one person has gone through this claiming to be who he was as God's Messiah. No one else fits the bill of exactly what this psalm talks about. Coincidence? Impossible. I think not. How did Jesus, the Messiah of God, even get into the position where he was put on the cross and crucified to be put to death, being rejected by the Jews? Well, another pinpoint prophecy. We're not going to talk too much on these, but another amazing pinpoint prophecy. We know in Matthew 26, 14 through 16, we know that Judas sold him for 30 pieces of silver. He sold him out. You know, he betrayed him for 30 pieces of silver. But that, did you know, 
was to fulfill Zechariah 11, 11 through 13. Then I said to them, if it is agreeable to you, give me my wages, if not refrain. So they weighed out for my wages 30 pieces of silver. And the Lord said to me, throw it into the potter, that princely price they set on me. So I took the 30 pieces of silver and threw them into the house of the Lord for the potter. Why did Jehovah cause these things to happen to Messiah, Christ Jesus anyway? Because he needed to do what Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34 spoke of, bringing in a new covenant with the children of Israel and with people in the world. No longer a covenant by the bulls and goats and rams, but a covenant that was made, right? A new covenant that God was going to bring. Fulfilling, of course, uh, Psalm 22, what we read there, Matthew 26, 26 through 28. And so as they were eating, Jesus took bread, blessed it, broke it, gave it to his disciples and said, Take eat, for this is my body. Then he took the cup, gave thanks, gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for the remission of sins. Pretty amazing how identical all the prophecy lines up exactly with what Christ Jesus went through in his life, on the cross, and in his death. Ladies and gentlemen and children of all ages, there's no way that Jesus Christ was not Jehovah's prophesied Messiah, suffering Messiah, Savior, that he spoke of hundreds, even thousands of years before Christ came. Over the last six weeks, I've shown you over and over and over and over again, the prophecies that Jehovah laid down so that mankind would be able to identify as true Messiah when he came. And I've also shared with you how Jesus Christ fulfilled every single one of them with pinpoint precision down to the exact date and time period that he came according to Daniel 9. Jehovah did speak about a ruling and reigning Messiah in prophecy, and Messiah must do those things also in order to be Jehovah's Messiah. But just as Isaiah 11.11 spoke of, there are two comings of Messiah. And don't worry, I promise you, when Jesus Christ returns again in his second coming, he will fulfill all of those ruling and reigning prophecies when he comes again. For now though, what do we do with his first coming? What do we do with the new covenant that he made in his blood. What do we do with that? Well, he came to bring a new covenant in his blood, and, and he did. Praise God for that. He came. He lived a perfect sinful, or sinless life. He was rejected, crucified for the sins of humanity, as Daniel 9 and Isaiah 52 and 53 spoke of. But what now? Well, he came to die for the sins of humanity because we have a sin problem. Sin separates us from God. What should our response be to what he did? Well, many think, sadly, that because he did what he did, then we're all just okay. Hey, because he did what he did, hey, God's good, he loves everybody, he's saving everybody. But that's not what Christ said. Christ said very specifically what our response was to be to him for what he did for us. Matthew 16 24, Jesus simply says, If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow after me. Whoever desires to save his life, earthly life now, will lose it, but whoever loses his life, his earthly life, for my sake, will find it. But what did Jesus say there? He wants you to deny yourself. 
He wants you to admit, of course, that the Bible is right. That there's mountains of historical evidence and proof that prove that Jesus Christ fit the bill of God's suffering Messiah, uh, of the way he was born, the people he came from, the town he was born in, the suffering part, the fact of how he, his, his crucifixion identically lines up with Psalm 22 and the pinpoint precision accuracy. He wants you to admit that first. Jesus Christ, you are God's only Messiah. Then you must, of course, that that Messiah, what God said is he's my Christ. That means he's the only way to eternal life. He's the only way to have eternal life. But God, you see, he was the only one to pay the sins of mankind. That means that you must admit and surrender to the fact that I can't be saved and go to heaven unless I'm with Jesus Christ. And then the deny ourselves, he said deny, must deny himself means that we must humble ourselves and we must surrender our lives to him. We must humble ourselves, we must open our hearts, and we must say, Jesus Christ, I, I need you. Please save me. I, I want to be yours. I submit myself to you, as I've talked about in many other sermons, as a husband would that wants to, or a man would to a wife that he wants to marry, same type of thing, or a woman wants to marry a man, same type of thing too. They, they open their hearts to one another and they become one and they decide to be dedicated to one and only one person for the rest of their lives in holy matrimony till death do us part. Jesus Christ wants you to surrender yourself to him. He wants all of you. He wants you surrendered. He want, And then, of course, he goes on to say that he wants you to follow him. Make, make him your God as you are born as your own God. But make him your God. Surrender yourself to him. And then, of course, begin to follow Jesus Christ. Live the ways that he taught you to live. Do the things that he taught you to do. We don't do the things and then are right with God. That's a work salvation. We surrender first. We, we humble ourselves and ask him to be our Lord and Savior. We, we, we humble ourselves and, 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 and bow at the foot of the cross and say, Jesus, I need you. And then with the desire of, I want him to rule my life. And then we follow him, making our actions back up the things that we said in our hearts, that we spoke in our hearts to God, that we cried out to God in our hearts, makings where we, we truly surrender and then we begin to follow. If that's not you today and you're not following Jesus Christ, he wants you to take that step to surrender. Admit that he's right and you're wrong. You need him. He knows you need him. Surrender. Turn your life to him. Bow yourself down at the foot of the cross and cry out to him. He's waiting for you. He wants to save you. He wants to not only save you, but he wants to use you for his kingdom. He wants to show you his love. He wants to make you a great man or woman of God doing mighty things in his name. He's just waiting on your first step. Turn to him. Jesus said, come to me, all you who labor and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Got to come to him in order to to be saved. Repentance unto surrender. Don't wait. Tomorrow you may not have. Today you've got right now. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for your word today, Lord God. Thank you so much for your love. Thank you so much, Lord God, for laying down all these proofs, Lord God in heaven. All these things that you laid down that are so amazingly, uh, wow, Lord, nobody, people can deny them, but they, they got to 
pluck out their eyes, Lord, and, and, and put their brains in, in a hole, Lord, literally just not to see the facts, Lord, that this is you. This is you were, you were giving us proof that Jesus Christ was going to be the Messiah before any Christian ever stood on this planet Earth, Lord. You gave proof that Jesus Christ was Messiah to help us believe, to help us turn to you, to help us to surrender to you. Thank you so much, Lord God. Thank you so much, so much, so much, so much, so much. We, I ask and pray right now, Lord God, for those of us that are yours, that we would follow you stronger with all the knowledge that I've given these past six weeks, Lord, about these prophecies about Messiah. Lord, I pray for those that are not saved. I pray, dear God, that they would come to humble themselves, fall on their knees, surrender their lives to Jesus Christ, submit themselves to you, and then begin to follow you. I pray, dear God, please, that the overwhelming amount of evidence of love that you've given and the love that you've shown would draw them to yourself. For it is the goodness of God which draws men to repentance. You are good, and the things you've done here are amazingly good. We love you, praise you, and thank you, dear God. Turn them to you, please, God, today. Help them turn to you. In Jesus Christ's name, we ask these things and pray.